Welcome to Season 5 of the Golden Knights Watch Podcast. I'm Jack Manning. I'm AJ Alexander. It's been a while. AJ, we haven't recorded a podcast together for going on five months since the end of our daily podcast. Our our non-compete clause has expired. We're able to get back in the studio and get to recording, and we've missed the people. AJ, how the hell have you been? I've been pretty good. I mean quite a bit to briefly cover in the offseason a lot has happened since the brutal playoff exit but overall things are more or less the same I can't say the same for you though no that's right because one of the reasons that we have held off on recording is I got a brand new baby boy showing up with a big thanks to my wife here in a in a couple of months so I've been getting prepped for a for a new family and that's going to be the first new Golden Knights fan since Flurry was traded to Chicago. <laughs> well done, first of all, congratulations. And second, I got to say, it's awfully large of you to throw some credit your wife's way. I mean, you made it sound like she pitched in just a little bit, and that's awfully big of you. Yeah, you know, I uh, I, I try to give credit where just credit a is due. But sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to, you know, throw somebody a bone. So, yeah. So huge, huge thanks to my wife for putting up with me, uh, recording another podcast here. We're going to try to keep this going uh, even after the kid shows up, but uh, you'll have to forgive us if from time to time, uh, the newest prospect on my prospect list is, uh, is getting more priority than the podcast. Uh, But you gotta, you gotta get used to your new line mate. That's all. It happens. It takes time. Exactly. Develop a little bit of chemistry, but uh, (laughs) But AJ, a lot's gone on, like you talked about in the offseason. We're probably not interested in rehashing what happened with Marc-Andre Fleury getting traded. Uh, I think that we all know how we feel about that at this point. And so uh, it probably doesn't do anyone any good to reopen those wounds. So let's talk about what the Golden Knights are looking at uh, in a brand new season that's starting in just a few days. Yeah, I got to say, and it it goes into that offseason sort of feel here got to say that I am still a little bit baffled by the addition of Evgeny Dadnov going for the cap room and making moves that may hurt in order to get said cap room. I get that. It's always difficult, but that wasn't exactly my first choice personally. And it definitely wasn't who I would have guessed. You could have given me all the guesses in the world. I would not have come up with the name Evgeny Dadnov, but apparently according to McCrimmon, They've had their eyes on him since the expansion draft. So, Jack, tell us a little bit about how your feelings are with that move and what you expect out of a player like Dadanov. Yeah, there was a time leading into the Golden Knights' first season when Evgeny Dadanov was rumored to be coming to Vegas along with Fadim Shipashev uh, and potentially Nikita Gusev, which would have been, man, what what a difference that would have made to our first year in Vegas. But he's a good player. He he can battle in front of the net. He can score 25 goals most of the time, as long as he's not playing in a in a black hole system uh, like the Ottawa Senators. Uh, he's a guy that routinely puts up 45 to 60 points somewhere in that range. So I don't have any problem with the acquisition. I would have thought that they would have been able to acquire a player for free on the open market, somebody who has a little bit more youth, a little bit more pop in his step than Evgeny Dadanov. 
I, but at the same time, I think the Golden Knights benefit to some degree by shedding the salary of uh, of Nick Holden, who, despite being one of Vegas's better players in the playoffs, uh, was just making too much uh, for for him to remain on the team. So you know, you have a net increase in salary of, of about three million bucks uh, to trade Nick Holden out for Evgeny Dadanoff. I'm okay with that. You mentioned that it was a net positive as far as the skill level that you're increasing there. He does have a cap hit of 5 million and he is coming off that horrendous season with Ottawa, but going back to taking away Holden, taking away Mark Andre Fleury from the locker room, Ryan Reeves is also gone. So you're looking at basically every off season that the team has had one locker room pillar more or less has been traded. Well, how much pressure are the leaders and the captains of this team going to have on them as they now have to make up for some personalities and some leadership in the locker room being missing compared to years past as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm really not worried about that too much. I think Mark Stone is a, is an incredibly strong leader. Alex Petrangelo obviously led the blues to a cup. I think there's plenty of personality in the room. The question is, is it the same personality that the golden Knights fans have come to know and love, you know, these locker room presences like, Marc-Andre Fleury and Ryan Reeves, huge personalities versus Mark Stone and, and Petrangelo, both of whom are subdued, I think is, is a fair way to put it. Yeah. Uh, definitely Mark Stone can get worked up on the ice, but when he's, he's sitting at the interview table, he doesn't exactly, uh, it doesn't exactly, you know, ring of, of, you know, general Patton leading the, leading the, the troops <laughs> into battle. But I think that you've got enough leadership there. I, I think what is really going to be missing for fans instead are those big personalities, your Nate Schmitz, your, your Marc-Andre Fleury's, your Ryan Reeves, the guys that are going to win you off the ice just as much as they are on. Should be noted, Evgeny Dadnov, up until last year with Ottawa, had scored 20 goals in every year of his pro career, dating back to 2011-2012 when he only played 15 games. I mean... You'd have to go into his Ska St. Petersburg career 2014-2015 to find a, a season where he didn't have at least 20 goals. And in fact, that year he had 19. So we do have a finisher here, and that's something that the Golden Knights were desperate for for, honestly, the last few years. Uh, and uh, I think this ahead. is a guy that really has the ability to improve what is probably the Golden Knights' biggest weakness, and that's their power play. The one thing that Cody Glass brought to this team before he was uh, shipped out of town, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but the one thing that he brought to the team was the ability to plant himself in front of the net on the power play and, and, and bury pucks. And that was why folks really thought he could have made a difference in the playoffs. Uh, well, that's exactly what Evgeny Dadanov does, but it's what he's been doing his entire career instead of what the Golden Knights were trying to train Cody Glass to become, something that he... He, he really wasn't. So I, I think that at least on paper, it's a, it's a great move to improve the power play and help them finish. Whether or not that's going to work out obviously remains to be seen, but, but I don't have any issue with the, uh, with the move overall. And I think the other big benefit that Evgeny Dadnov brings is he is one more addition to what is becoming a pretty healthy community of Russians in uh, in Henderson and Vegas, uh, especially with the pretty strong likelihood that Ivan Morozov is going to uh, to come across the uh, the ocean there is gonna, and is going to join Vegas in what is likely going to be the end of this season. Recent reports from Russia have suggested that 
Uh, Ivan Morozov has been sent down to uh, the farm team for Ska St. Petersburg, uh, Ska Neva. And the reason that he's being sent down is he's refused to extend his contract with Ska St. Petersburg and has told them that he plans to sign with Vegas as soon as he can. So they're looking for a trade for him right now. So I think that having uh, an established Russian player, somebody who has a long history of success in the NHL, has played for Ska St. Petersburg. I think having that in the system uh, when, I'm more, when Ivan Morozov gets here, I think it could be really valuable in helping him to adjust and helping him to immediately jump in and contribute in a third-line role. Just as a quick aside here, you mentioned Morozov and what's happening to him in the KHL. To me, the non-KHL super fan like yourself – it sounds like the team is cutting off their nose despite their face because Morozov actually put up some really good numbers last season. Is that right? What yeah, exactly and, is going on here? Yeah, Ivan Morozov, and for folks who don't know, he was taken 61st overall by the Vegas Golden Knights in the 2018 draft. Uh, he was the top scoring player under the age of 21 in the KHL last year, scoring 31 points and I think 54 games, something like that. And this year, despite having a pretty good outing in the in the preseason, got sent down to the minors uh, in part to allow for other young players in the SCA system to come up. Uh, but I think that it's it's pretty easy to see that one of the reasons that he's been sent down and they're looking to trade him is because he's he's not willing to stick around in in Russia to continue his career in the KHL. So that's not an unusual. So they'd rather just demote him rather than actually use his abilities for the rest of the year, at least. Well, I, <laughs> it just I, seems spiteful, which I guess we should come to expect from there, but, you know. Yeah, and that's par for the course for, for Scott St. Petersburg. They did that with Pod Colson last year. They've done it with other players in the past. And and really, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense to me, but that that's the way they've operated for a long time. And so they'll look to trade him to another team uh, for the balance of this year. Uh, he's not in a position to buy out his own contract. The only way that he could get out now is if both sides agreed to, to mutually terminate the contract. And I just don't see Ska being willing to do that because they just haven't done it in the past, except to, to maybe let a guy out a few weeks early after the playoffs have already come to a close. So I, I think that he's planning to be in Russia for the remainder of the year, but come April 30th, he can come over and sign in Vegas. And I think he's an immediate third line threat. It's a bit of a shame that things aren't the same way. This is where I sound old, but back in my day, back in my day in the 90s, you could just steal a Russian player in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness from Russia. Yeah, you, you, just, Sergei had, Fedorov. you just had to figure out a way to smuggle him into a backpack, throw him into the cargo hold of a plane, and then have him make three different airport changes on the way over to New York. And boom, just like that, he's yours. And if no one saw it, no one's family gets killed. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes, they do. So you <laughs> that's true. That's probably true. All right. You mentioned it. So let's go ahead and rip this band-aid off too. Cody Glass traded. That means the entire first round, the first first round, if you will, of the Golden Knights history. All of them are gone. Yeah. Cody Glass didn't really live up to that sixth overall position, at least not yet, not in time for the Golden Knights brass. So he gets moved, and it's sort of trading a reclamation project to another team for another with Nolan Patrick coming into Vegas. Yeah, you know, I, I, I have to believe that the trade was more about 
getting Nolan Patrick than it was getting rid of Cody Glass. But at the same time, I don't think that the Golden Knights management was thrilled to have Cody Glass in the system anymore just because he didn't really fit this the system that was that Pete DeBoer was putting together clearly didn't have Pete DeBoer's trust and so at some point you know even if you might think that he's eventually going to be a good player and I still think that Cody Glass has the ability to become a contributing top six center if he doesn't fit your coach it doesn't matter how good you think he's going to be you have to move on from him in and what th- ways did he not fit the uh, the system that DeBoer runs? What kind of player is he that DeBoer really couldn't shine any spotlight on that ability? Yeah, so Cody Glass obviously was a pass-first sort of uh, perimeter-type player that didn't go to the net as often as he probably did in, in junior and as, pro- as much as he probably sure. should have uh, when he was playing here for Vegas. And so I think when you look at a player like Nolan Patrick, that's exactly what he does game in game out and I think a lot of the stats that the advanced stats that you can look at would show that the pretty terrible season that uh, that Nolan Patrick had last year was yes it was his fault because you're expected to produce but at the same time he wasn't exactly given the best of line mates wasn't put in a position to to play consistently with the same guys and so couldn't you say that about Cody I, I absolutely would. I think that both players needed a, a fresh start. I don't think there's any question about that. And I think that there's probably a better chance that they both succeed in a new environment than either of them would it, with their previous teams. And so ultimately, Kelly McCrimmon was the coach for uh, for Nolan Patrick back when uh, he was in junior, when they were both <clears throat> with the Brandon Wheat Kings. And Nolan Patrick played his absolute best hockey when playing for Kelly McCrimmon. And so if he can find that same, that same spark plug, that same uh, motivation that he had playing for Kelly McCrimmon uh, up in Manitoba, if he can find that here, the Golden Knights might have an absolute stud on their hands. I, I'm not penciling him in to be a top six forward right away, but I, I think that at the very least, he is an NHL player. There's zero chance that he's going to get waived or sent down to Henderson because he's he's not waiver exempt, meaning that if they try to send him to Henderson, uh, he'll be claimed off of waivers by any other team for free. And so he's going to get regular time in the lineup. He's going to get regular time with some pretty good wingers that at times have played in the top six of various teams. And so you're not going to get a better opportunity if you're Nolan Patrick than to have a general manager that absolutely believes in you and an opportunity to play with a set of wingers that, you know, can can finish the chances you create. That's fair. Okay. That's a good way uh, to put it. Do you think that they actually see something in Patrick or is it straight up? He was good in Brandon when I was there. So because <laughs> I, I sense that becoming a theme and I get it. Mark Stone, great player. You know, you've got other players that crossed that path, but I don't know. I think it's a bit of a nostalgia trade. I can't really blame them, but as, as much as, as much as I think that the desire to bring in guys from Kelly McCrimmon's past feels a bit like as much as that feels like uh, them just going on a reunion tour. I, when I watch Nolan Patrick, when I watch the individual events of his game, the, the way that he can skate, the skill that he has to pull off, I mean, highlight real plays, but his inability to 
click with his line mates. I think it's difficult for me to figure out why he isn't more successful. If, if you were okay. to, if you were to give me all of the, the different assets and put them into a package and say, is this an NHL player? I I'd say, yeah, that's definitely an NHL player. And so why isn't he scoring 40 or 50 points? No one knows, except for maybe the fact that he is, he, he had a horrible concussion and that just shook his confidence and shook his ability to, to do the things that I know that he can do. Um, so I don't think it's just nostalgia, but I do think that there's a reason that Kelly McCrimmon ended up with this player and no one else did. I'm like 30 points. Each of his first two years is damn good. And then it just fell off. It's it's, he's almost like a dad now, but a prospect. Yeah. I, 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 man, I, if if you if you got your bell rung as badly as he clearly did, that oh, he was yeah. concussed for a full year. Yeah, I, I think that concussions are something that people really need to give a little bit more credit to how badly they can affect a player. Uh, and, and I think Absolutely. there's no better example of that than uh, than Sven Berchi, who was a, a relatively underreported acquisition for the Vegas Golden Knights. This is a guy that's played probably close to 200 games with the Vancouver Canucks uh, and the Calgary Flames was at one point expected to be Bo Horvat's lifetime winger uh, up with the, the Vancouver Canucks. And he's a very high skilled guy, but similar to Nolan Patrick took a massive, massive hit that just absolutely rung his bell. He had a nasty concussion that held him out for a year and a half. And by the time that he came back, He'd been passed in the depth chart. He was out of practice and is now looking for a, a new role with a new team. And I think that when you when you want to know who is Van Berchi, he's Brandon Peary plus. He's better than <laughs> Brandon Peary. He can play defensive hockey. He is an NHL player as long as the injuries uh, aren't going to hold him out of the lineup and as long as he can get back to the form that he was he was in two years ago. Um and so I think the same is probably true of Nolan Patrick, that if everything goes right, if, if, the, if the head issues are no longer an issue, you've got a real good player there. But if the, if the head injuries are, are going to continue to, to give him issues, he may not ever really be anything more than window dressing for the team. And again, you mentioned that concussions – still aren't entirely understood or given the credit for as far as how severe they can be. I've had a few of them on my own. I'm sure that comes to no surprise as many of our viewers, but <laughs> another name that, that comes to, to mind is Eric Lindros and another former fire, excellent player. My favorite non Detroit Red Wing player in the league at the time, never really was the same after those head injuries. Yeah, and that's, so hopefully Nolan Patrick can rebound, unlike Lindros. But you're dealing with something serious for sure. Yeah, and so I said it at the top of the show. I'll say it again. I think that the range of what Nolan Patrick can be is wide. He may end up being just a third line nobody. He may end up on the top line uh, between uh, Pacioretty and Stone and looking great doing it. And I think that it's all going to boil down to what he looks like in camp. I don't think that Stevenson has a lock on that first line center job. I, I think if we're all being honest, his best role is probably 
on the, the third line as a winger. Um, but if, if there's no other options, I think the team is comfortable putting him up on that top line just because of how well they performed in the regular season. But I think it's, it, it would be hard to ignore how poorly that line did through the playoffs in terms of their production. So I think they, they need someone else in that top center job and they're hopeful that, that Patrick can be it. You mentioned that Patrick may not have had the best line mates in Philadelphia and looking at his stats, it's certainly hard to argue that because he went from, again, plus plus minus is a team stat. We get that. I understand that. Plus one in his rookie year was 73 games. Sophomore year, 72 games minus eight. All right, fine. I get that. He still put up this basically the same amount of points. I'm not exactly angry at that. But last year, 52 games. So 20 less games played. Minus 30. What the hell happened last season with his line mates? That's what I want to know. Yeah, so two things. I well, more than two things, but but several things. The first of which is okay, yes, he played 52 games. So he played the full season, but he came back after having taken an entire year away from hockey to deal with concussion issues. So that's that's the first thing. He, part of it is just trying to get back into form after taking a full year out of hockey. The second of which is that Carter Hart, uh, his goalie, had the worst save percentage of any goalie in any situation, specifically when Nolan Patrick was on the ice. So I don't know what it was about the smell of Nolan Patrick that made uh, that made Carter Hart a terrible goalie, but he saw him on the ice and, and immediately just laid down and invited the invited the puck to be shot past him in the net. So I, I don't know what was going on there, but I think separating the two is going to be great for both of their careers. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it, when you play a high skill player like that on the fourth line, getting six or seven minutes a night, and you're playing him with mediocre wingers, guys that barely belong in the NHL, a guy like Patrick isn't going to shine the way he should. He's not a he's not an overly physical player, especially after coming off of such a, a serious injury. So putting him in a position to succeed with other high skill players that are defensively responsible and can allow him to excel in the offensive zone makes it possible for him to come back and put up a little bit better of a performance than a negative 30 because woof. So let's take a time machine trip. Not to where we thought Cody Glass would be captain of this team <laughs> because there was a time where we both agreed that would happen, but a little bit further back. Golden Knights have yet to have their first entry draft. So we're taking that time machine back to the very first NHL entry draft for the Golden Knights. Let's say that things were different. Philadelphia ends up with Cody Glass or whoever ends up with Cody Glass. It doesn't matter. But the Golden Knights end up with Nolan Patrick. How excited would you have been at that time? What what sort of player do you see him as and how do you see him fitting in with what will probably be, like you said, a bottom six assignment? Yeah, I mean, I still have the more or less the same opinion about Nolan Patrick now that I did in in 2017, that he's probably a second line center. Even, even the, the most optimistic of optimists it, at, at the time of the 2017 draft didn't really think there were any uh, absolute home run slam dunk 
first line centers in that draft. And while, yeah, there are a couple that came out, one of whom the Golden Knights drafted in Nick Suzuki, the other being drafted just before Cody Glass with Elias Pettersson, and maybe another couple to, to come out of that draft at some other point, most folks estimated that Nolan Patrick was going to be a, a very good second line center. And I, I think that's probably what I would have expected then, probably what I, I still expect of him uh, is just going to take a little bit longer. Now, whether or not he's going to be an excellent second line center or just a guy that plays on the second line, uh, I think reasonable minds can disagree. But this is a kid that clearly has some high skill. And if he can stay healthy and if he can play some regular minutes, uh, I, I am more excited to have him than I would be to still have Cody Glass at this point. And you mentioned the net front presence and it sort of blends into or overlaps into another skill that I think he brings to the table that Cody really never did. And that's physical play. It would be safe to say that at least when he came out, Nolan Patrick was more or less a power forward. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's true. Um, that being said, uh, in his second year of uh, of his NHL career, he missed the entire year uh, with some uh, with some pretty serious migraine and concussion issues. Probably the two are related. Uh, and so, how physically he's going to play now? Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that it's it's necessarily going to be there right away. That was one of the big criticisms of him last year: is that all of the physicality that you would have expected out of him after uh, being injured in his draft year and then injured in his sophomore year. Uh, it, it sort of looks like he's afraid to throw the body as much as he was before. And so I don't know what it's going to take to get that back, but if he can, I think there, there's a really valuable skill set there. Speaking of physicality, Ryan Reeves exiting toward New York for, I guess, Tom Wilson insurance. <laughs> oh, so we we're going to have a very, I was just going to say, we're going to have a very different bottom six, especially that bottom four. How do you see that, that bottom six, especially again, that fourth line really formulating into a much different look? What do you expect out of those, of those players? Because I don't think we know what the lineup will be yet. And it's, it's exciting in one way, but again, it's going to be a very different feel, is it not? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I just want to say in terms of Ryan Reeves, if you find someone that loves you as much as Gerard Gallant loves Ryan Reeves, you, you got to do what it takes. You you, you move mountains, you, you leave Las Vegas to go be with the one that you really love. So congratulations to them both. I think they're going to be really happy together. But in terms of the the fourth line for Vegas, it's I think there's, there's a lot of question marks there. I, I think no matter what, you have to look at what the – fourth line has available to it this year and you have to think that it's going to be a higher skill group so I think Will Carrier is going to keep his spot on that line he's a very good fourth line player even if he doesn't necessarily have that scoring touch he's defensively responsible he's the the grittiest uh the grittiest forward left in Vegas's system uh, and so I don't think they're going to give up the guy that's going to be ready to, to throw punches, even if you've got Nick Hague and, and Braden McNabb on the back end. I, I think they're going to want to keep at least one forward that is built to fight. Now, 
the the question is, what are they going to do with the newly acquired Howden? How good is he going to be? Uh, a lot of folks seem to think that there's still a, a decent player there, maybe a third line upside guy. Uh, his record is going to be wearing silver by the end of the year. Yeah, he's got to be. I I mean, the only reason I think he wouldn't be is because he's he's waiver eligible, meaning that he can be picked up on waivers for, for free anyway. Um, Brett Howden was not very good in New York. So I'm willing to I'm willing to see what a, a, a motivated Brett Howden looks like now that he's on his, I think, third or fourth NHL team since being drafted. Um, but I don't have a ton of high hopes for him, if I'm being perfectly honest. Looking at the, the what equates to basically spare parts for a bottom six, especially with Alex Tuck being out, you have to imagine that a pretty decent player is going to be the odd man out here. Yeah, I mean, you you have to wonder, all right, where is a guy like Nick Waugh going to be? I don't think he's going to be on the third line. If, you, if he's competing with Peyton Krebs and with Nolan Patrick for that third line center job, I... I just don't think that they want Nick Waugh to be the guy on that third seat. I think they see him as a very, very good fourth liner. And I think they, they think that he can match up pretty well with Will Carrier and one other guy, whoever that might be. But I think you're going to have a, a, probably a pretty decent, uh, a decent player sitting on the bench. If, if it were you, who do you think would be the guy sitting? Part of me wonders if it will be Carrier, if they just go for straight skill and potential scoring threats, if you want to call a fourth line scoring threat in any situation. But I think it's going to be up in the air. And like I said, not to say that Will Carrier is going to be in Henderson or anything, but I, I could see a bit of a revolving door depending on the situation. DeBoer can do that sometimes. Um, I don't think we'll see the fourth line start many games anymore. I'll tell you that much, but... I do think there's a possibility, a, a really good possibility that someone is on the outside looking in. And I don't know. I, I know that you mentioned Carrier is the, the only bruiser we have left, the only grit we really have left, especially on that bottom six squad. But I don't know. I, I just don't think that that's quite enough in today's game. I know that a lot of people continue to think and continue to believe you need grit. You need that sort of physical presence and intimidation to win in the playoffs. I don't think that's the case anymore, but I understand the desire and the want for it. Of course, I think you may see situational lineups and I know that's a bit of a cop out. I'm not naming names here, but I think we could see just a, a guy that comes in and out of the lineup, depending on, depending on the lineup they're facing that night. Someone that won't be in the lineup, at least opening day and for some time into the season is Alex Tuck. And we should be used to that. The only opening day that he's ever played with Vegas was last season. And even that was touch and go for a bit there. He looked really good in the playoffs. The only thing he lacked was finish. It felt like he was due to just go off at any moment. Didn't really do that, at least on the scoreboard, but he looked great. Now we know he was doing it with an injury. Yeah, I, I wonder if part of the reason that he was having a tough time finishing is because of the, the shoulder injury that he ultimately ended up going right. in for, for surgery to correct. So I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I He's probably the only one that can offer any sort of a decent opinion on whether or not the injury affected him during the playoffs. But 
I'm not terribly surprised to see him go on IR. I think Vegas is interested in playing a little bit of the Nikita Kucherov game this year and keeping as many guys on IR as they can during the course of the season uh, so they can try and go in with the best squad possible to, to the playoffs. But I think this really opens up a nice opportunity to A, bring in a guy like Dadnov and be a little bit over the cap to start the season. I think it also gives an opportunity to a guy like Peyton Krebs and maybe one other guy who played in Henderson last year, uh, who that is remains to be seen. But I think it gives an opportunity for some of the younger guys uh, to try and crack their way onto this team. Because if Alex Tuck is fully healthy, I think that what we're talking about instead is who does he push out of the top six as opposed to uh, who's going to have an opportunity to try and steal Alex Tuck's job at, at camp. Because I think that, especially when you're looking at guys like Peyton Krebs, who got a five-game taste last year, or guys like Lucas Elvenis or, uh, or Jack Dugan, who haven't had a sniff yet and are starting to get to an age where you'd expect it's you know either shit or get off the pot time. Uh, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of competition at camp and maybe some surprises as to who else Vegas allows to get in the lineup and maybe has to make a move to make room for. When Alex Tuck returns, what kind of salary cap overage are the Golden Knights looking at here? I mean, are we talking about moving a top six player or what, what exactly should fans expect when it comes to Tuck coming back into the lineup as far as the salary cap goes? Yeah, so I hear a lot of people saying, oh, don't worry about it. We'll put Alex Tuck on injured reserve and, and then we'll we'll accumulate cap space over the course of the season. Well, just to clarify, no, once you put a player on injured reserve and you exceed the cap, you do not accumulate any additional cap to, to make up for it when he gets back. So they're going to have to, even if they just have 18 skaters and two goalies, there's still about 40,000 over the cap ceiling. So the I think that, if Alex Tuck is going to come back during the regular season, it's going to be as a result of someone else getting injured and being able to put that person on IR. Otherwise, they're going to have to to shed the salary of somebody who makes uh, more than you know more than a, a couple million dollars. And how they're going to do that, uh, I don't know. But I think they're they're really hoping that either the the injured reserve sorts that out for them or one of their young guys makes such an impact that they can afford to shed somebody who's making a few extra million dollars, maybe a, a, a Matias Yanmark, maybe, uh, maybe someone like that. It, it's hard to, hard to say, but right now they're playing fast and loose again. They're not going to have to sit anyone to get under uh, the salary cap that they, they aren't going to be able to play those games, you know, playing short with the number of forwards, but they're, they're definitely going to have to do something once Alex Tuck comes back, that's going to be a little bit painful, whether it's physically or uh, in terms of asset management. This might be a stupid question, but for those of the fans out there that may have the same thought, because it seemed like you implied that the team would sort of prefer if Tuck go ahead and take his time on this one and maybe come back for the playoffs. Is there any sort of oversight as far as the injuries are concerned within the league? Meaning do they have an, an audit, so to speak, for lack of a better term, this guy can return. So let's get him back on the ice. Quit, quit fudging the cap. Or does the league just say, okay, we trust the team. He's hurt. We'll just, we'll just wait sort of like we saw with Tampa Bay. 
as I understand it, you just have to have your team doctor certify that, nope, he's not healthy enough to play. And, you know, the, the league takes those medical professionals and their, their impeccable integrity uh, at face value. And I'm sure that no one has ever skirted the rules at all. I'm sure that, that when Patrick Kane came back in 2015, he was, he was in his full body cast right up until the playoffs started. I'm sure that when Nikita Khrushchev came back for, for Tampa Bay last year, that no, it, he was walking with one leg right up until the playoffs started. And I'm sure that when Alex Tuck ultimately comes back the day that the playoffs start, he, he will have just gone to uh, a Southern Baptist revival church and someone will have smacked him on the head <laughs> and he will walk again. It's, you know, it, I think that these are all reasonable scientific decisions. And I, I, I'm a little bit shocked to hear you suggest otherwise, AJ. Again, wasn't suggesting anything. It was for the fans out there who may have thought the same thing. Obviously, oh, not the questioning thought. the integrity, <laughs> not questioning the, the authority or the integrity of what literally is a league that is a modern day haven of miracles. It I want to just make that clear. All, just modern science and, and religion meeting in the middle to make sure that these guys come back perfectly healthy just in time for the playoffs. It's, it's, it's really astounding. If only the rest of the world really adapted an attitude of the NHL and paid attention to the NHL here stateside, they'd know that the secret to meeting in the middle in any area is hockey. the 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 biggest question i've got about alex tuck is does alex tuck potentially fit into a jack eichel trade we've been hearing rumors about jack eichel potentially being traded desiring to be traded buffalo wanting to trade him uh but his injured neck is not allowing for that he's got a herniated disc But there was a lot of discussion at one point about Alex Tuck being involved in a return trade and with them both being injured, both needing to start the season on injured reserve. I'm curious what folks think of a Jack Eichel trade overall right now. At least for me personally, I think the cost of acquisition to get a player that uh, is a big question mark in terms of his health. I, I'm I'm not crazy about that idea. I think the assets that you'd give up would leave too big of a hole in this team uh, to to justify the move. But the fact remains that the Golden Knights lack a a genuine first line elite center, and, and I don't know that you can win a Stanley Cup without one. So I'm curious as to what you think about the idea of a a Jack Eichel, Alex Tuck trade that involves those pieces, obviously Vegas adding quite a bit more to make that happen. But I'm curious what you think of the idea of that. Well, I'm curious as to yours as well, but um, as far as I go, I know that I'm in the definitive minority on this and I just don't think it's a good idea at all. We talked about and joked about trusting the doctors and jokes aside, I am trusting the doctors here, and it seems like it's fairly overwhelming as far as the reaction from doctors go as to the particular surgery he wants. I get it. It's his body. I respect that, and it should be his choice. But when it comes to the Golden Knights, taking a chance on a player with an injury already, a serious one, is an issue. But then you're heading into literally unprecedented territory here, No other player has had the surgery that 
he wants to have, despite the fact that other doctors are saying they wouldn't recommend it either. It, there's just a lot of drama with that. And, and you mentioned it. Alex Tuck is probably the best young forward we have that's already established on the team right now. And his near $5 million cap hit gets you halfway there as far as moving the salary goes, not nearly halfway there as far as what you would need to give up to acquire Eichel. And I get it. Eichel is a really, really, really good player. And you need that sort of play from a center. Who's to say he's even available come playoff time anyways. And to me, if you're going to make a move, not to bring it up again, but I have to, if you're going to make a move that involves trading out the face of your franchise since day one for quite literally nothing in return, that says to me that they want to win the cup, not next year, but this year. If they don't, if they don't win a cup this year, after having traded Flurry, it was, it was a waste to begin with, but it was just, it's a serious indictment on the, on the move and the franchise itself because you ruin all of that good faith that Flurry had for the team where he publicly stated he would re-sign next year for much cheaper. You give up the ability to have what would be the best goalie tandem in the league for more time. So if they don't win the cup this year, all of that is a waste. And I just don't see Eichel doing that with the drama, with the neck, especially if he ends up having the surgery that he wants. It's just too much of a risk. Maybe if, you know, the team were coming into the league and had all of the excess picks that they did before, maybe still wouldn't want to do it, but it would at least be a little bit more tenable. But for me, I just don't see the cost outweighing the benefit. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. I think that the uh, the risk that you run uh, of paying that many assets to get a player back that you just don't know who he's going to be after he gets that surgery and who he might be if he takes one more giant hit, I just don't see how you can take that big of a risk. At one point, Vegas was going after Eric Carlson while he was still in Ottawa. If if the Golden Knights had paid the cost that it would have taken to acquire Eric Carlson, we wouldn't be talking about them being in a cup contending window. We'd be talking about the albatross that ruined the Golden Knights from having that uh, initial success uh, right after you know, the, the expansion draft. We would have been talking about how they're going to be saddled with his contract for the next five years. And, and so I am always hesitant to take on a player that makes that much money who has an injury history and whose injury is likely to be re-aggravated at some point in the future. I think that if they can acquire a slightly less talented player, somebody in the the same category as Thomas Hurdle or, or uh, Christian Dvorak, obviously Christian Dvorak is, is now with Montreal, but some someone of that caliber to come in and act as a low-end first-line center where the cost of acquisition is something you can tolerate and maybe you don't uh, significantly detract from existing pieces on the team. I, I think that's a more likely way for the Golden Knights to win a cup. And at this point, that's what it's got to all be about. You mentioned the H word and hurdle. Now friend of the show, AJ Choi, the other AJ, as I call him, is doing backflips in his living room or where, wherever he may be listening to this. So shout out to him. You just made his day. But mentioning other names, you kind of 
alluded to it earlier with Peyton Krebs and rookie camp and a lot of prospects that have been sort of percolating in Chicago and or Henderson over this time, right about now, like you mentioned, is when you expect those prospects to be pushing for at least bottom six jobs. Do you see there being any surprise names that actually are on the opening night roster at all for Vegas, especially with this injury? Or do you think they just uh, bump Dadnov from what likely would have been a third line assignment up to take, you know, place of somebody else? What exactly do you see as far as a uh, surprise name possibilities? Man, I just don't see any room uh, on the roster for there for there to be more than one or two young guys to play. And that, and that's a bit of a shame because you, you look at Jack Dugan, who's uh, going into to his 23 year old year. Most guys are in the league and have got a rookie season under their belt by, by that point. So it's, it's time for Jack Dugan to make it or not. And I, I worry there's, there's not really room for him. I think the same is, is essentially true of Lucas Elvinus, who's a year younger. Yeah. He's only, he, he's only 22, but you would think that at this point he'd be starting to, to get a few games. And, and so when you're talking about, a Matias Yanmark still on the roster, a, an Evgeny Dadunov still on the roster, uh, uh, adding Nolan Patrick, adding Howden, keeping Carrier, and, and having Nick Waugh. I don't see how you squeeze anyone else into the bottom six, uh, aside from maybe Peyton Krebs stealing a job, uh, aside from, you know, uh, aside from a one or two surprises. I just don't know how you squeeze those guys onto the roster. But, you know, the one player I think is going to have a real opportunity to maybe force his way on, onto the roster, somebody that people aren't talking about all that much, is Caden Korzak. I, I know folks are looking forward to seeing Dylan Coughlin compete and steal a job uh, because he's another young player that, that's been with the team. He's another undrafted free agent that you think should be getting a chance. But I think that Caden Korzak, in terms of what he can do, his ability to essentially replace the skill set of Braden McNabb, I think might make Braden McNabb somewhat expendable. Now, I'm not calling for him to be traded, but I could see a universe where Caden Korzak comes into camp. He's, he's a truculent kid. He adds a little bit of offense. He can skate really, really well, especially for his size. I see a universe where maybe the, the front office says, all right, maybe we add uh, another asset another young asset. We trade out the last year of Braden McNabb's contract. And, and instead, we let Caden Korzak play and we in, increase the, uh, the assets we have uh, for the future. And I, I would like to see that happen. I'm not saying I, I necessarily need to see Caden Korzak in the lineup, but I want, but I think I would really like to see Caden Korzak force his way in the lineup, making somebody like McNabb expendable. Well, so would I, but for slightly different reasons, uh, that clears a little bit of money to re-sign Zach Whitecloud. Yeah, I know you're worried about signing Zach Whitecloud, but for, for a guy that only had, what, 12 points last year, I don't think you really need to be worried about, you know, so, someone coming in and, and putting an offer sheet in on the kid. I, his comparable suggests that he's worth about seven hundred fifty to $800,000 on a one-way deal. I, I just don't think you need to be worried about Zach Whitecloud going anywhere. I'll worry about what I need to worry about. All right. <laughs> 
Who worry Fair about enough. painting that baby room, son? I will. I will worry about painting this baby room. But and for for those of you wondering at home, my my old podcasting studio is now the home of a crib and a changing table. And I never thought that I would buy a table exclusively for another human being to poop on. But that said, what you told your wife as far as putting the insulating foam around the crib was that it was just in case the baby fell. Meanwhile, we're getting some pretty killer sound quality coming from that room. (laughs) I think we pulled it off. (laughs) Nailed it. So a couple of the other prospects that I'm really excited to see, even though I don't think they've got much of a chance of making it out of camp this year, the first of which is... Lucas Cormier. Lucas Cormier was voted the best defensive player in all of the QMJHL last year. And I think he's going to have another huge year. So I'm really excited to see what he looks like in comparison uh, to the rest of the Golden Knights prospects. I'm also very excited to see some of our new prospects, some of the guys drafted in the 2021 drafts, particularly Zach Dean, uh, who they took at 29th overall from the Gatineau Olympiques in the QMJHL. This is a kid who's probably a middle six forward when everything is said and done. Uh, got a really nice set of hands, can really skate, but doesn't have much of a shot. But I think there's a, a, a genuine player there, even if he's probably just a middle six forward. Uh, and then on the back end, you've got Daniil Chaika, who, man, he had a, a tough season in Russia last year. Uh, but I think it was because he was being told to play in a way that doesn't really suit his game. This kid is huge. He's 6'4". He can skate like the absolute wind. Uh, he and uh, he and Nick Haig are going to be a, a pair of absolute behemoths on the back end. And, and I think that that's a player that could probably be ready to play NHL minutes in maybe seven or eight months. Like come playoffs might be an option uh, to play for Vegas uh, after he finishes his season in the WHL. But I think folks should be really excited about Daniel Chaika. I think folks should be really excited about Zach Dean. And then I think there's some interesting other players down the lineup or excuse me, down the down the draft card for Vegas. They picked up a guy, Archer Cholok, who's the first Ukrainian-born prospect to be drafted in the into the NHL since 2007. Uh, he he is good in terms of raw skill, but I can't say that I knew who he was prior to the draft. Uh, they've also drafted uh, Jacob Demek out of the Czech League. I think that's another guy who's got a lot of skill, can skate really well, but probably doesn't have the hands or, or the shot that you'd be looking for out of a, a high-end NHL prospect, but certainly is, is a potential to be a, a bottom six contributor. And then finally, the the last guy that I thought was was really interesting uh, was Jacob Brabinek, uh, who came out of the Slovak League. He's going to be uh, going and playing in the CHL again this year. So it, it they've got some really talented players, guys that I, I'm interested to learn a bit more about, but those guys probably won't be challenging for jobs anytime soon. Well, in that same vein, though, we've got rookie camp, and to the layman, It could be just sort of boring, just sort of another practice or a scrimmage. But you're talking about some of these young players having the opportunity to really show something to the coaching staff. In your opinion, how much weight actually gets put onto these camps from the perspective of the coaches? Is it just another set of scrimmages that they're hoping turns into more? What exactly are coaches looking at and looking for in these? And does it really make that big of a difference? 
Well, I think especially this year, it, it makes a huge difference to how these kids are viewed by the, the organization. So especially where last after last year's draft, there wasn't an opportunity for there to be a rookie camp. This is going to be the first time for two separate draft classes to get onto the ice together to show what they can do in person uh, on a one-on-one setting with the, with the coaching staff and with the development staff. And I think that's going to make a, a, a significant difference. The way that these kids perform uh, over a course of four or five games in, in this tournament down in Arizona that they're all headed to on September 15th. I think that's going to make a, a significant difference in who they deem to be untouchable in terms of trades, or at least very highly valued, and, and those that might be made available. I think we'd all be kidding ourselves to think that every prospect that comes into the golden knight system is, is untouchable obviously like we mentioned at the top of the draft three of three first round picks from 2017 have all been shipped out in varying degrees of blockbuster trades and i think that you can probably expect to see more guys moved out if a, another spectacular player becomes available and so how these kids perform here it matters not only to the Golden Knights, but it matters to their trade partners. I'm just going to tell baby Jack that uh, Nick Haig was our first round pick. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Nick Haig taken it at 35th overall was our first round pick. And there were 35 picks in that first round. That's just the way it was then. You just don't question it, kid. And that's all there is to it. Expansion rules. What are you going to do? AJ, we put out the uh, the Golden Knights watch signal uh, for folks to send in questions for us to answer here on the show. We've got a couple that we'd like to uh, to dive into. So why don't you hit me? This is from Derek Shane. Including Nolan Patrick, Brett Howden, Peyton Krebs, etc. Which young center do you think has the highest upside and who's the most likely to stick in the NHL this year? Yeah, so I think that Nolan Patrick probably has the highest upside and he's the most likely to stick in the NHL. Uh, but I don't necessarily know that Nolan Patrick has the most likely highest upside, if that makes sense, where I think that his absolute ceiling is the highest, but I think that Krebs is at minimum a second line forward and maybe even a second line center, whereas Patrick could be anywhere from a third line center to a top line center. Um, but I am most confident in Krebs to be successful out of all of the center prospects for, for the Golden Knights. But this year we're taking Patrick, right? That's this your pick. I think there's 0% chance that Patrick isn't in the lineup all year. And so I think he is a, an absolute lock to stick, but I think that Krebs is probably an 80% chance to stick. And the big question is who's he going to force out of the lineup? Fair enough. Got another question from Landon. Do you think Vegas has an underrated future with Krebs and hopefully Morozov coming soon? Obviously there are some other names that we've mentioned, some that we haven't, including Dorofayev. What are some names, including those two that Landon mentioned that, you think may contribute to Vegas having an underrated pipeline, so to speak. Well, so if I'm being honest, I don't know that Vegas does have an underrated pipeline because 
if we're being honest, Vegas doesn't have anyone in the pipeline that looks to be absolutely elite. They don't have anyone in the pipeline that looks to be an absolute game breaker. So it's hard for me to say that they're underrated, but I think that there are a number of players in the system that are underrated. Um, specifically, Ivan Morozov jumps to mind. Uh, he was taken 61st overall. He often escapes the top 60 uh top 60 NHL prospect list put out by the various services. But I think that he is a guaranteed at, at a bare minimum third line center and probably a second line center. I think that Vegas is going to have a huge collection of second line centers available to them. Um, I think that guys like Lucas Cormier ha have a real good shot at being a top four uh, a top four defenseman, the same with Caden Korzak. Uh, even if they end up playing on Vegas's third line, I think that quality-wise, as compared to most top four defensemen, both of those guys uh, would fit the bill. I think that guys like uh, Jack Dugan and Lucas Elvinus are closer than people give them credit for, but because they're so unlikely to crack the lineup as compared to the, the vets they have in the system, uh, they are also underrated. So no, I don't think that the system overall is underrated. I think that most people see them as being about 20th in the league. And I think that's probably fair, but I think there's a lot of hidden gems that people don't give credit for. Okay. Well, as a follow-up there in that same vein, Who's a prospect within the pipeline that, whether it's the experts or fans in general, don't talk about enough? Who's an underrated prospect that's that's uh, sort of percolating? So the guy that I really like a lot that I don't talk about enough is Brendan Brisson. And I've okay. heard some ridiculous, some ridiculous takes that, oh, Vegas only took Brendan Brisson because of who his dad is, Pat Brisson, the, the mega agent. And so first of all, why would anyone rather have the prospect whose father is an agent? That just seems like an absolute headache and a recipe for disaster whenever you're looking at contract negotiations. Uh, I think that they took that player because he has an absolute cannon of a shot, is a power play weapon, someone that can really, really add to the ability for Vegas to score on the power play. Uh, but he's also a, you know, a pretty decent player off the rush, somebody that it has a, a good set of skills and could be a, a top six forward in the not too distant future. It's going to be really interesting to see where he lines up this year playing for the University of Michigan. Uh, it, it's been discussed ad nauseum that uh, Kent Johnson, Maddie Beneers, uh, Luke Hughes, uh, and Owen Power, four of the top five picks at the 2021 NHL draft all play for Michigan. But Brendan Brisson was playing higher in the lineup than all of those guys last year. And he is just one year ahead of them in terms of, of draft classes. So I think there's a, an opportunity for Vegas to develop a really good player in Brendan Brisson. Uh, and that's somebody that just doesn't get enough credit. I thought for sure you were going to say Jackson Hallam, but maybe in a year or two. Yeah. Jackson Hallam is another interesting player in that he was supposed to be at Michigan this year. Uh, but because of how crowded that roster is, he's playing another year in the USHL as a draft plus two. Granted, he's a very young draft plus two, but he's in his draft plus two year. And he's just getting into his 11th or 12th a uh, you know, major junior game. He only played about 10 games in the USHL last year. So I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of tools in his toolkit 
he skates really well. He can, uh, he can use a, a pretty good set of hands at speed, but whether or not he's ready to play a, a more physical game of the college, uh, of, of the college variety, or whether he's got the hockey IQ that it's going to take to put those skills to their best use, I think is a, is another question. Michigan's going to basically be icing an all-star team. So I don't really blame him there, but going back to Brisson's agent father, he became a mega agent and you don't become one of those by doing favors for anybody for any circumstance. And that's just something that should be just send it out as a reminder because these agents, a lot of them come from a lawyer background. And as we all know, lawyers don't have feelings. No, we don't. We really don't. (laughs) One last question from the boundless realm, which I'm pretty sure is the only actual realm that follows us. If you're a realm out there and you want to know about Golden Knights hockey, follow us. We need (laughs) something else other than a boundless realm. But his question is a good one. Is Morozov going to be the greatest Golden Knight of all time or the greatest NHL player of all time? <laughs> Ivan Morozov is just going to be the greatest Ivan Morozov in the NHL of all time. He's he's to me a surefire NHL player. He's to me the the player that I am most confident in who has never played an NHL game to become an NHL regular in the Golden Knights system. And I think that by the time he gets over here, uh, whether it's in April or in September of 2022 he's going to be an immediate contributor. I don't expect him to play a single game in Henderson unless he goes the rest of the season without playing because Scott refuses to give him any minutes. If I had asked you at the time of them being drafted, would you have said that you expected Morozov to be the better player out of he and Pavel Dorfayev? Because it seemed like you were pretty high on Dorfayev asking Jack, back then, would you have been surprised? Would he have been surprised? Rather? Yeah, I think so. I think that when Dora 5 was drafted, I expected him to be a little bit further along than he was. As of that point, as of the draft in 2019, I'd only seen him, I'd only seen him in the Russian junior leagues where he was an absolute monster and no one plays defense. And so... I was a little bit surprised to see how difficult of a time he had generating offense at a slightly higher level. Uh, and so I was more, always more confident in the floor for Morozov than the ceiling for Dorofayev. And so right now the floor for the floor for Morozov is winning out over that ceiling. One last question from me, putting you on the spot here. You actually have to commit to this one too. Who has the better season, Cody Glass or Nolan Patrick? Nolan Patrick has a better season. I do think that eventually Cody Glass becomes a decent second-line center. I think that he's got too much skill not to be someone in the same vein as Paul Stastny was when he played for Vegas. Right. But I think that Nolan Patrick is more motivated, and I think that Nolan Patrick still has the better skill set overall. Uh, So... You know, cross your fingers. I think that uh, the homer pick wins out this time. Fair enough. Fair enough. And I I happen to agree. I actually sort of think that Cody Glass is more of a middle six guy. I know that includes the second line center spot. We'll see if he can get there. My opinion is that he probably won't. And we'll likely see him on the third line somewhere, somehow. But again, I hope I'm wrong. 
nothing wrong with Cody Glass. Nice guy for all intents and purposes, as far as what I can see. I just am uh, not as uh, optimistic as you are, but we'll see what happens there. We're going to try and do these podcasts a little bit more often going forward. We've our non-compete with our prior podcast host uh, is now up. We are able to record anytime we wish, and we've settled all our lawsuits. So F you, Debbie. AJ, say goodnight to the people. Good night to the people. That's not what you're supposed to say. You're supposed to say, keep up the watch. Well, do that too. Keep up the watch.